0: Welcome to the fourth episode of the Did You Do Your Homework podcast, the show that teaches you everything about anything, assigns you homework, and makes it fun again. I am one of your capable co-hosts, Martha Sullivan, uh, infamously at this point, I hope, a teen librarian by day and super nerd by night. I am joined this
1: evening by... Uh,
2: Pete Romberg, online curriculum developer and all-around pop culture consumer.
1: And Kaylee Scout and data analyst and weird sort of media consumer. How are you both doing tonight? It feels like it's been
0: a long week for everyone. (laughs) It's been a very long week.
2: That's a good way to sum it up. It's been a long week for everyone.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, why don't we start off the way we have been for the past couple weeks, by listing our pop culture credentials. Uh, This, as you guys know, is the last piece of pop culture that you consumed. Uh, No editing for guilty pleasure factor, just straight up, what was the last thing you engaged in? Pete, you want to go first?
2: Sure. Um, A couple months ago, I started listening to an audiobook, which I got halfway through until it told me that the file was corrupted so I stopped, <laughs> went back to listening to podcasts, um, and then last week said to my ran out of podcasts and said to myself, "I should get back into that audiobook." So I re-downloaded it, and I'm listening to it now. It is SPQR: A History of the Roman uh, Republic and Early Empire by classicist Mary Beard. Um, it's phenomenal. If you like Roman history, uh, it's definitely a must-read or listen to.
0: All right. Um, just side note, Pete, when you say your audiobook file was corrupted, where exactly are you getting your audiobook files from? Audible. Um,
2: (laughs) so so it must have just been like a weird bad download or something. Um, and when I, when I went back into Audible to listen to it again, it just worked. So Mm -hmm. shrug face emoji.
0: Insert plug to, uh, get audiobooks from your local library here um (laughs) kaylee what do you have for us Uh, tonight
1: i I, the last thing i consumed before this was outlander um i started watching the show after many attempts to read and then listen to the audiobook um which i know is not the best way to do things but i started watching the show and i'm i think i'm enjoying it it's a lot easier one of the problems that i have with book is that i have a really hard time like, keeping track of characters and so like being able to put a face to that helps a lot okay and the last thing that i consumed were tag along girl scout cookies huh. uh,
0: which which i grew up with as peanut butter sandwiches um i understand that there are some people that have weird names for Girl Scout cookies and that they have been standardized now. But seriously, the word tag along doesn't mean anything. They are peanut butter sandwiches. It tells you exactly what you're getting. And for the purposes of the show, I am maintaining that Girl Scout cookies are integrated enough into our pop culture landscape that I get to count them as my credential for the week.
1: Okay.
2: Also plug that it's Girl Scout cookie season, so everyone build up your stocks now. Support your your girl stocks.
0: I'm pretty sure there's a locator app that you can put on your phone that will show you where the nearest uh, table setup is if you don't have a hookup. (laughs) Um, But seriously, the Girl Scouts are pretty awesome and I support uh, supporting them. Yeah, also cookies. So I picked our topic for this week um and i picked reboots and reimaginings uh inspired by the fact that i had just seen the riverdale pilot and really really enjoyed it um i think that we can all agree that our culture is somewhat obsessed at the moment with well not at the moment actually i was just reading an article that said how hollywood and just our tv and movie landscape uh has been obsessed with remakes sequels and franchises basically forever Um, but for some reason, and maybe it's just because we've looped around to it being my nostalgia that's getting, uh, remade and rebooted, it seems much more prevalent now than it did when I was a child. However, I don't think it's a bad thing. I am a librarian. I read a lot of books. I watch a lot of movies that are based on those books, and I will never, ever tell you that it is an automatic given that the book will be better than the movie. I simply do not believe that that's true. Uh, However, we can get into that a little more in-depth once we've all had a chance to introduce our homework for the week. My particular homework, I made you guys all watch the brand-new pilot for the CW show Riverdale. Uh, Riverdale is a TV show based on Archie Comics, uh, which has been around for a zillion years. Archie is... Actually, give me a sec. I'm going to actually tell us all when Archie Comics started. 1939.
2: What? Whoa, that's 20 uh, years earlier than I thought. I not
0: know that. Yep, the initial Archie characters, who are Archie Andrews, Betty Cooper, and Veronica Lodge, were created in 1941. Mm. So they have been around for a really Pepper. long time. <laughs> Uh, in this newest incarnation, uh, Archie Andrews is played by KJ Appa, Betty Cooper is played by Lily Reinhart, and Veronica Lodge is played by my personal favorite, Camilla Mendez. Uh, the show has got, or the property has gotten a cw makeover, so everyone is super hot. Um, the show has been described as Twin Peaks meets Archie Comics, which I actually don't think is super accurate. Uh, but insofar as the pilot uh, demonstrates, someone gets murdered, and all is not as it seems in the charming town of Riverdale. Uh, one of the things that I liked about that I like current tense uh, that I like about Archie Comics is that, especially recently, they have never been afraid of kind of mixing things up with their property. You get some very fun side projects in the Archie universe, such as Archie vs. Predator. Uh, which is a highly wow. enjoyable mini series. Um also the ongoing Afterlife with Archie, uh, which is written by the current creative director of Archie Comics, who is also the creator of the Riverdale show. So at least we know that it has been that it's a uh interpretation that's helmed by the guy in charge.
2: And a- Afterlife by Archie, is that the one where they're all zombies?
0: Well, they're not all zombies.
2: There are but zombies.
0: Yes, Jughead's dog dies. So he has Sabrina the Teenage Witch resurrect it. Uh, It comes back as a zombie dog, bites Jughead, who becomes patient zero for the zombie outbreak in Riverdale. Fantastic. Um, It's amazing. (laughs) Um, But yeah, like I said, I really enjoyed this pilot. I thought they did a really good job of using the characters who we are all kind of culturally familiar with as shorthand,, uh, so they didn't have to do too much expositionary work uh, introducing the show, but could rather just kind of get right in. Um, and I also thought they did a good job of transplanting these personalities to a more modern setting, even though everyone has really hysterically old-fashioned names like Archie or Geraldine, <laughs> for Smithers example.
2: the butler. <laughs>
0: um, but what did you guys think?
2: Um, I, I had to laugh at the very opening. I, too, had heard that it was um, Archie meets Twin Peaks, and the Welcome to Riverdale sign looks almost identical to the Welcome to Twin Peaks sign. Um, so they knew what they were doing. They were leaning into that curve a bit. Um, I felt it was more Archie meets Twin Peaks meets Gossip Girl or the OC meets a random noir narration thing with sprinklings of what seems like a a future money mystery thing and uh, Lolita uh, thrown in there, too. Um, There were moments I laughed. I thought it was way too over the top and they were doing way too many arcs in this first episode. Um, It it was a show that was trying to be three or four different things, which in 50 minutes makes it hard for it to feel like any one thing. Um, And I also think that, like, all the, the characters are all going into their sophomore year of high school. These are 20-somethings playing 15-year-olds. That never really works out well. Um, and it makes some of the storylines either very uncomfortable or just sort of feel overly dramatic. Um, so I think this would have—I would have been a little more into it or okay with it if they were all, like, going into their senior year of high school— But I also understand from a storytelling perspective, if we want this to go six seasons, we've got to give them time to go through some years of high school.
0: Well, and also just like what when you say over the top, like what?
2: Yeah, so the the scene I'm thinking of specifically is where Archie and his dad are having like an argument discussion about like. Archie's like, I just want to play music and I don't want to play football. And his dad's like, no, you have to play football because that's how you get into a business school so you can run the family business. And I'm like, ooh, that's a overly dramatic. Like, first off, the, the people in um, Friday Night Lights don't care as much about their high school quarterbacks as Riverdale cares about Archie as a high school quarterback, which is part of what Archie comics are, so I'm down with that. Um, but it felt... Like a conversation you'd be having more with your seventeen year old son than with your like fourteen or fifteen year old son
0: i I will say that i I don't necessarily like I agree with you that the the role of the quarterback and all of this is over is like played up and kind of over the top. I mean, it's a teen drama, so I think that yeah. that's just something we're going to have to accept. The having that conversation with your fifteen year old that is absolutely something that happens. Like, I I work in a town that is very focused on, like, our kids go to college, and college prep starts before they get to high school. So that I didn't really have a problem with. It felt like it maybe wouldn't
2: be the conversation. I've always assumed that Riverdale is sort of a small, more rural town rather than a, like, suburb um, of a larger city. Um, So it seems like it didn't really fit that setting like if it was an east coast and they were all going to an east coast prep school or you know um that sort of setting that would feel a little more on point
0: i'm not going to spend too much time on this because we have other stuff we need to talk about but i think that the point there at least between archie and his dad was more and this might come up more the the further into the show we get but it's like riverdale is this tiny little podunk town and football has a better chance of getting Archie out of that than I think his dad thinks music does. Sure. But like I said, that that's not the subject of discussion here. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right. I mean, overall, I laughed uh, enough. I thought it was a, an entertaining way to spend 50 minutes, um, but it wasn't a show that I was going to slot into my uh, regular viewing um, roster.
1: Kaylee, thoughts? Um... I think I would agree with the 20-somethings playing 15-year-olds in the regard that it felt like they were too old. But at the same time, if you do have 20-somethings playing 15-year-olds, then you don't have to deal with eventual changes, I guess. So in a way, that's kind of like the show people putting a little bit of, like I guess, insurance into their show of saying, these are going to be the faces that you're going to have for the next... X amount of years as we get through this narrative that we want to cover. Um, well, and that's just always true. Yes. Yes. Just teens don't play teens on TV. Like no. Right. right. (laughs) Um and I feel like the CW does really like to have the whole we're going to put in a whole bunch of like um storylines and whatnot into the first couple of episodes. You kind of have a lot of stuff going on and I've sort of started a lot of CW shows so I'm kind of comfortable and familiar with like their way of doing things so that part didn't really like strike out at me because it's like okay this is this is what you do this is how you go and then you know develop those storylines or drop them as you see fit um, it's been a really long time since I've read an Archie comic I think the last time I read one was back in grade school so my Relative Archie meter might be a little off, but because of the fact that they also do a whole bunch of different types of narratives, like you were saying, Archie versus Predator, it kind of, you know, Archie becomes like a bigger character than his story.
2: As as someone who's never actively read an Archie comic, but being like in pop culture, I'm aware of it and I know the main plot points and I, I know that especially recently... Um, the the Archie comics have been doing like some really phenomenal work. From all I'm hearing, um, a couple years ago, who was it? Mark Wade and Fiona Staples started like a rebooted Archie, which seems like it's getting only the most positive praise. Um, Chip Zdarsky is wonderful. Is, yeah, like Chip Zdarsky is writing a um a Jughead comic, which equally is getting wonderful praise. Um, so so that that is like my level of Archie experience. This felt like they captured the three main characters and um, Kevin well. um,
0: I would include Jughead in that because it's a different relationship that they're showing between Jughead and Archie. But I do think that they have kept kind of the the central core of bitterness that Jughead usually has. Yeah. Which I appreciate.
1: Yeah, I saw Jughead and I'm like, that's Jughead. Like, I felt... It felt like Jughead, if that makes sense.
2: Jughead was my least favorite part of that, but I can't tell if I disliked him because I didn't like him as a character or if because they used him as... Uh, the show opens and ends with like a neo-noir narration done by Jughead, I guess, as he's writing this story or something. And I, I didn't like it, and then it went away for 90% of the show, and then it came back at the end. And that, to me, was one of my, like, you're trying to do too many things... Um, so I, I couldn't tell if I disliked Jughead because of the way they were using him, or because of how they were portraying his character.
0: Okay, we're gonna move on to Pete's homework. I want to get through—I want to get through all of our homework assignments because I have some definitions uh, that I want to use, but only after we have uh, all kind of gone through what we made each other watch this week. So, Pete, why don't you tell us what you made us watch?
2: Cool. Um, So I assigned the first episode of The Magicians, a sci-fi show that just started its second season. Um, The Magicians is based on a book by Lev Grossman. The book is sort of a uh, send-up subversion of Harry Potter, Narnia, your classic, um, you know, uh, child wizard stories. Um, In the first episode, um, Quentin Coldwater, who is our main character... Uh, is finishing up college, going to grad school, uh, takes a test to get admitted into a prestigious program that turns out to be a magic school. Um, and then we go from there. Wacky things happen. Uh, Martha, what'd you think about about it?
0: Um, it was fine. I'd actually watched this first episode, um, a couple of weeks ago, just for funsies. Um, so I've seen, I think, the first three episodes of season one. Um, it's fine. I I have not read the book, and I don't think the show does a very good job of assuming that people who've watched it haven't read the book. There was a lot where I was like, oh, okay, we're doing this now? Oh, okay, I guess. Um, it feels like they they are trying to hit certain plot points... And in order to get to those plot points, they decide that it's okay to cut, like, explanatory connective tissue. So when I watch it, I kind of just have to accept that things are happening. Because I don't think that the show spends a whole lot of time working to explain why they are, just that they are happening.
2: That is a great point for something I'm gonna talk about later after we've we've gone through all three homework assignments. Yeah. <laughs> um.
0: Um, so it's like I said, it's fine. It's um, it's entertaining enough that I continue to watch it. Um, I don't always super get what's going on. Um, but I don't know that I care that much. Um, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> It is a it is a solidly average
1: fantasy TV show. <laughs> <laughs> hey,
2: Kaylee, how about you?
1: Um, I think I would agree. I only watched the first episode, and I actually, I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would, which, I don't know if my expectations were just low or what, but, I mean, that's always a good, good thing to say is that, you know, you enjoyed it. There were some parts where I felt like the acting was very stiff. Mm-hmm. And then at times it got really, like, loose, and you're like, okay, yeah, I-, I can get into this. And then it got back to stiff, and I'm like, I can't tell, like, I don't think it was just one person that was doing it. I think it was just maybe, like, their lines or something. Um, and unfortunately, I've never, I didn't hear about, I've never heard about the books until this episode. So I don't have any, like, past history or past, like, you know, oh, it's it's not as good as the books because I've never read them, so... Are the books, like, funny? Not funny.
0: I felt like the show takes itself really seriously, and because it's, like, a fantastical, whimsical kind of story, I wanted it to treat itself, like, more fantastically and whimsically. Is, th- are th- is the book a little more lighthearted, or is it just as dour as the show? It's,
2: it's a lot more aware I mean, in the book you have a lot. Li- I don't know if this is in the show too, but there's a book where you have a line where they specifically reference Harry Potter because they're all at a magic school and they're all like 18-year-olds who have, of course, read Harry Potter. Um, so it's, it's much more self-aware. At the same time, it's a book where it's like magic is serious business. So you don't have to be serious to do magic, but you have to like, you have to be a very obsessive person to even get into it. So the characters are all sort of messed up. Um, in in one way or another. And it's a dark, like dark, terrible things happen to the characters. None of the characters are particularly likable. But it's a very engaging read, to me at least. Um, And a lot stronger world building, I think, than the show. This this was a show that I loved the book series of, and unlike Kaylee, did not set my expectations well. So the first episode really... Uh, disappointed me. Um, going back and watching it for this, I was a lot more okay with the first episode because I, I sort of knew how I should be setting my expectations. I don't I don't know if that actually answered your question, Martha.
0: Um, I don't know that it did either. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought Casey Roll was the best part. Who was Casey? She Roll? plays. She plays the the leader of the girl gang that the. I don't remember any of these people's names. um The girl who doesn't get into cool mm. magic school.
2: Uh, Julie. Uh,
0: she okay gets in with that crowd of like mobster, like secret magic people. And Casey Roll is the adorable freckled uh, badass leader, apparently. I don't know if that happens in the first episode. Oh, maybe not. I'm sorry. They get trapped in a meat locker together and she's like playing like she's a yeah. uh, a beginner but really she's just testing Julia's resolve before she lets her into her like girl gang of
2: hedge witches off the
0: grid magic people sure <laughs> Anyway, I liked her even though <laughs> I don't remember her name.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh Kaylee, what do we watch for you? Okay, so for me, um I had you guys watch the first episode of Sailor Moon Crystal, um which is a your typical, well, the pretty much starter magical girl um anime type trope show, um and it follows a a middle school student named Usagi Tsukino as she becomes A magical girl to save her planet which I think is actually the moon which is based almost entirely off of Sailor Moon from 1991 so
0: what is the difference between Sailor Moon Crystal and the original Sailor Moon because I was like deep into Sailor Moon as a small child and Sailor Moon Crystal seems to be the same thing, only with slightly better animation. Yes. So, like, what is the... Like, what's the purpose behind Sailor Moon Crystal?
1: Well, isn't that what we're here to discover? I
0: I didn't know if you had... Like, if you knew... If you had any information on, like, this is why
1: they decided oh. to bring it back. or Um... I don't know why they decided to bring it back other than to just bring it back because they had better animation.
2: I can I can insert a caching caching noise here if if that's the answer.
0: Pete, you and I are gonna have fun on this episode.
1: <laughs> 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 well as far as I can tell, like it feels like Crystal is a much slimmer version of Sailor Moon. Um I know that the story itself seems to be a little bit more quicker paced and I feel like they cut out a lot of the filler episodes, but that's something that you wouldn't necessarily know unless you watch more than one episode because of the fact that I think the first two episodes are like nearly identical to each other.
2: Okay. That makes me feel a lot better. Uh, and I'm very glad Martha, you, uh, had the same thought because I, I did not watch any Sailor Moon. I was not, um... Uh, engrossed in it, but I knew the plot beats, and I wasn't entirely sure how this one was different either. So I'm glad the answer is, it's not that different, and I'm not confused, or or I am confused, but it's it's real confusion, not fake confusion.
1: Yes, yes. <laughs> um, and I guess one of the reasons why I did pick this one was because of the fact that it is like pretty much a direct reboot. Which actually, unless anybody has any
0: more initial thoughts uh, on Sailor Moon, um, is a very neat segue into what I kind of, like the meat that I want us to get into for this episode. So when you're talking about remakes, I think there are a couple of different creatures that you could be talking about, which tend to get lumped into the same kind of general pop culture categories, but I don't necessarily always think that that's fair. So what we have, we have reboots, reimaginings, remakes, and adaptations, um, which I believe are all different animals. Um I think that what you know what we have for Riverdale and the magicians are adaptations uh, from one media to another. Um, what we have for Sailor Moon Crystal, I think, is a reboot rather than a remake, um, and then for oh, really? a reimagining.
2: I, I thought you might cross them the other way, since it is so similar. But I guess that will be the the definitions well, I say, that we get when, into.
0: When I think of when I think of the word reboot, I think of somebody saying, "Let's like let's go back to the beginning." Um, For I guess when I think of remake I think more like something I have a couple examples here of um, foreign films that were remade as American films so taking something and remaking it as something slightly different but staying within the same medium I think as soon as you change medium you're now talking about an adaptation
1: rather than a remake Mm -hmm. so like Um, if you take the Hulk and then the remake of the Hulk because they wanted to do a better job no
0: that's a reboot I would call that a reboot Because okay. they're rebooting uh, Rebooting the story how many times can I say that Word in one podcast um, The same basically the same People are taking the same story And rebooting It as something Like taking it back to the beginning If
2: How about the new Ghostbusters would that be a Reboot or a remake
0: I see I mm, Or
2: a reimagining
0: Maybe a Reimagining because you're changing something core about the original material and, and boy, obviously all, the, all those
2: angry men on the internet will definitely tell you that you're changing something core to the original material
0: they can suck my d- yep actually um sorry i know we try to keep this podcast safe for work but yeah they can straight up suck it um one of the ideas that I want to get into in a little bit is this totally fabricated, completely false idea of ruining one's childhood. Oh, it's the But worst. we don't have to get into that right now. It's dumb and it doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm getting off topic. Um, but I, I mean, I think that there's some gray area and obviously the those uh, four things are sort of ethereal. Um, but what I really want to get into tonight is why when, when we remake something or reboot it or reimagine it or whatever, why, like, why is a culture? Do we feel the need to do that? Cause clearly we do. Um, and I'm kind of wondering what you guys think is the purpose behind uh, remaking things um, with sort of the ferocity <laughs> that our pop culture tends to do it with.
2: So I guess I have two things that come to mind immediately. Um, One of them is the one that I already mentioned and that we can get into a fight about afterwards, about um, (laughs) it's sometimes financially very lucrative to remake something. Um, And especially if you have a modern studio system that is going more and more towards one of two films, Um, either your enormous blockbuster summer tentpole um, movie, or your super low-budget indie sort of movie. And, and we've, in the last ten years, sort of seen a move away from the mid-budget things. Um, if you're putting more and more of your eggs into one movie basket, you as a studio need to make sure that it's going to make money. And a safe way to do that is to see what has made money in the past and do that again. Um, so that that's one direction. The other direction, which I think is a lot kinder, is... You know, as, as each generation comes of age, they look back fondly on the things that they themselves, um, you know, grew up with. The nostalgia factor. Um, Ron Howard and Steven Spielberg and directors like that look back to the 50s and 60s for a lot of their things. Um, Stranger Things looks back to the 80s. A lot of what we're going through now is looking back at the 80s because the people who are driving um, a lot of the creative decisions came of age in the 80s. Um, so there's going to be a lot of fondness for that. Sometimes, like in Stranger Things, it's going to appear as homage or reference or simply setting it then, but other directors are going to be looking at it more as a a place to mine it for ideas. Or, um, you know, J.J. Abrams, I think he did a great job with Force Awakens, and I also know that it was like his dream to do a Star Wars movie. So uh, given the chance, he's absolutely going to do a Star Wars movie. And if it feels like New Hope, well, you know, it was a good movie.
0: I I think that the I think you have just said two identical things though because.
2: Well, I'm, I'm coming. I right mean, at people one from the the budget office and the other from the creative office.
0: But I, filmmaking is a business, so nobody's gonna make a movie that they don't think can make money.
2: I guess what I'm thinking of is you have your. Filmmakers like Spielberg who looked back at the 50s and 60s as a way to create ideas or worlds or, you know, what have you, but then created a new film. Um, Stranger Things would be a modern example of that. Um, and then you have um, someone or some studio saying like, hey, Poltergeist, that was a great movie. Let's do it again
0: um well but then one of those things you're talking about is not sort of
2: a remake germane to the
0: conversation (laughs) right like you're you're talking about two different things and i'm just saying that i don't think that the desire to make money off of things that they know they can make money off of is inherently a bad thing
2: no but i i think that the way that that studio structures like like the the decisions that studios have made in the way that they are budgeting and, and assuming that they'll make money off of their movies means that we are seeing more reboots um, or, or you know, um, uh, sequels, etc. than we had in the past because they are putting more of their eggs in one basket.
0: But if they know that basket can make them money, <laughs> I don't know that we can blame them for doing that. Right. And
2: I, I'm not blaming them on that end, but I'm I, I guess okay. I'm I'm coming at it at, at the there's the creative side of it, and then there's the the structural decision that is causing there to be more of them than there were before.
1: Well and I'd like to add that I feel like they're popular. Like, right now they're very popular and not necessarily that that's a bad thing. Like, I'm not saying, like, to remake a movie or to re-imagine something is sort of in. And I don't necessarily know if it's a lack of creativity on, you know, filmmakers and showmakers or if it's just they're, like, jumping on the popular boat. And so it's kind of like one of those things where it's just like, I think everyone likes to complain that. It's not new where we're running out of ideas, but we're not running out of ideas. We're just... That's what's popular, so. I would like to posit, and you guys can tell me if you
0: agree or disagree, that when you're talking about a good remake or a good reboot... No, you know what? For the moment, I'm going to stick to the word remake. When you're talking about a good remake, you are talking about something that is recognizably like recognizably the original thing. So I'm going to take JJ, cause we were just talking about JJ Abrams, his 2009 star Trek movie is unquestionably original series star Trek. But I think that what makes it a good remake is that it takes the identifiable characteristics of original star Trek but uses those characteristics to say something that is relevant now. And I think that that's, I think that a good remake has to bring recognizable elements of the original material and make them relevant to us currently. And if that there's, if there's no effort to do that, if it's just, Hey, anyone will go watch poltergeist. Then that's what makes it bad. Not necessarily the fact that it was made at all, but that it was yep. made with no thought to its current relevance.
2: Yes, I would definitely agree with that.
1: Yep, I would too.
2: And I guess that that is probably a much better way to get at the idea I was trying to get at earlier of there's the financial considerations and then the, for lack of a better term, artistic considerations, where a, mm-hmm. a good remake will do something new with it and also make boatloads of money. Whereas a bad remake might make boatloads of money, but won't do anything new or interesting with it.
0: Or it will not do anything new or interesting, and then it won't make money. Like, (laughs) oh, I don't know, the Lone Ranger movie? (laughs) Who thought that was a good idea? (laughs) Not
1: me.
2: Jerry Bruckheimer.
0: Yes, Jerry Bruckheimer. Oh, was that a Bruckheimer film? I was all set to blame uh, Tim Burton for that, because it was a Johnny Depp vehicle. I think
2: it was Bruckheimer, but don't quote me on that. I know Burton oh, wasn't involved.
0: No, I'm sure. I'm sure it was. Did Bruckheimer do Pirates of the Caribbean?
2: Yeah, he produced it. Yeah. So <laughs> there we go.
0: But yeah, I think it's important, especially when you're looking at um, older films, like staying within the realm of American cinema. When you're looking at older movies that are being remade in a modern context, um, you know what the filmmakers choose to do with that context. Like, are they actually uh, kind of transposing this material, or have they just said, you know what, any idiot will go see this movie. It doesn't matter what we put into it.
2: Did either of you see the new Magnificent Seven?
0: I no. did! I'm so glad you brought that up, because I want to talk about it real bad.
2: Good, I haven't seen it. <laughs> uh, I, I love Seven Samurai, and I love the original. I never saw the the newest version, Um. so have at.
0: They are three for three, my friend. Ooh. Uh, I loved seven samurai i loved the original magnificent seven and i loved the new one um i do think that there is kind of less uh, the, the biggest i mean the biggest cultural jump obviously is between seven samurai and the original magnificent seven um just because you're talking about a change in um culture and time and place and everything. And the new Magnificent Seven is still a Western. It's still, um, you know, there's less less of a difference. Um, but it's also not the same story. There are differences in who the characters are. And while the basic premise that, you know, seven guys come together to help save a town from shady dealings is the same. Um, there's... There's a lot going on that's really interesting about sort of what makes someone heroic and what constitutes like a redemption arc. And I don't know, I really liked it. A lot of the internet didn't, and I think they're wrong. Um, but yeah, that one just the whole arc of the Magnificent seven property, I think is a really interesting one to look at. Cause you, you're talking about a movie that started as a Japanese samurai film, uh, moved into the, Was it 70s? 70s westerns?
2: I think it was earlier than that. I want to say 50s.
0: When westerns were real big. um, You know, it made that jump. And then again, uh, I think westerns is just a genre that works really well uh, in the realm of reboots. Because 310 to Yuma was also phenomenal.
2: Agreed. Uh Uh, And 1960 was the original Magnificent Seven.
0: Okay, so you split the difference. You know, And Pete, you have Yojimbo and A Fistful of Dollars down here as talking points, which is also a samurai film uh translated into a western, but I'm it, I can't actually tell from your notes here whether how you feel about this one.
2: So I love both Yojimbo and Fistful of Dollars. Um Fistful of Dollars is Clint Eastwood um in the same I think it's the same role he has in the good the, good, the bad and the ugly. Uh, and if it's not the same character, they're all interchangeable Clint Eastwood Western dudes anyway. So, um, But I brought this one up specifically because it's an infamous case where um, Yojimbo was the original Kurosawa film. Uh, Sergio Leone saw the film, totally transposed it to a Western setting, refilmed it, never got permission, nothing. Uh, I think he ended up getting sued and having to pay Kurosawa money because it's a very very direct, um, you know, translation of it. Um, so I, I brought it up more as a case of like, obviously when we're doing reboots and reimaginings, we would hope that the original, uh, whoever owns the copyright or the, the intellectual property is aware of and has consented to and is getting paid for this reboot, um, in some way. Um, but sometimes it doesn't. Uh, And even though they are both great films, the the latter one sort of has the shadow over it because of it.
0: How do you feel, and this is, I guess this is only sort of tangentially related, how how do you feel about the Kill Bill films?
2: I think that, like, with everything Tarantino does, it's a, Tarantino's a magpie. Um, He takes all the (laughs) things that he likes in other movies and puts them together in his own movie. Um, and I'm okay with that because I'm okay with collages. Um, if, if Kill Bill was just stealing from one film, I would be less okay with it, but because it's stealing from 500 films, um, it's a collage. Okay. (laughs) And I bet none of those other (laughs) films had as much of a focus on people's feet as Kill Bill does.
0: Oh, well, no. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, like uh, like the time period remake. Um, I also kind of want to touch on, and we sort of got into it with the the Japanese uh, films turned into westerns. But uh, the United States remakes a lot of foreign film. Um, you know, some more successfully than others. And this again, um, I think has a lot to do with how heavily or not the film is divorced from its original context and how well or not, uh, the, the new context gets played on my, the, the example that I use is like, don't ever do this Hollywood. No, really, please don't ever do this. Um, there was a Japanese movie called shall we dance that was made in like 1996, um, which was remade in America with Richard Gere. And when they remade it, uh, the central premise of the movie no longer makes sense because the original film deals very heavily with the, this like Japanese culture of um, privacy and the inherent shame that the main character would feel over taking secret dance lessons because that's like an effeminate thing that you don't do, especially not with some, he, he, Mean he's doing it to impress his wife. So there's no like cheating going on, but there's a lot of like, Oh, you can never tell anybody because if you do like, they'll just see it wrong. And frankly, uh, who cares if Richard Gere wants to take ballroom dancing, like moving it out of its cultural context makes the central premise of the movie, make no sense. um, which I think makes it a poor remake.
2: Yes. Um, yes.
0: You know, whereas you have something and I feel like this might be a, a point of contention, although I'm not sure it might not. Um, where if you have something like, uh, is Pete is let the right one in Swedish.
2: Oh, uh, uh, let the right one in is Swedish and let me in is American.
0: Is American. No, I, I know. I just couldn't remember, um, yeah, which I, country let the right one in.
2: I had to verbalize um, it in that to, to yeah. know myself
0: but I thought that let me in did a very good job of taking the premise of let the right one in and transplanting it into an American setting, still making sense, but making sense in a way that is definitively American in the way that let the right one in makes sense in a way that is definitively, um, Swedish and European. I really liked let me in.
2: Let the right one in and let me in. And I think similarly, especially because they were all coming out around the same time, um, girl with the dragon tattoo and david fincher's girl with the dragon tattoo um yes i i also thought i i loved both versions of girl with the dragon tattoo and i thought that it worked well as a remake for the same reason that i thought let me in worked well as a remake which is that the there are unique social and cultural markers to sweden um that make those swedish versions unique in those ways but overall, it's a similar enough culture to America. And I think this is true in, in with any European film, um, that it's close enough and similar enough that a remake is able to... Like, that you won't have what happens with that shall we dance where it's like, who cares, let Richard Gere get a dancing instructor, yeah. whatever. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, um, uh, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo is like, my family are all Nazis and my daughter went missing. It's like, ooh, Yeah. I can understand all of those components and why you might feel those ways um, so I, I think that smooths out that trans you know that that remake transition a little bit more
0: girl with the dragon tattoo is also interesting because the the remake the Fincher remake is still taking place in Sweden like mm-hmm. they don't they don't actually move it um, but the style of filmmaking is very different like the um American cinematic conventions, I think, are what makes that one different rather than placing it in a different time or place.
2: And I got to say, that's one where if it wasn't Fincher and if it wasn't so well done, I might basically, like, kvetch about, like, why are we even making this again? Um, You know, crass (laughs) money grab, whatever. But it's like, oh, yeah, David Fincher's a really good director. He can do that. That's cool.
0: Well, and I think that that's an important uh question to answer is like when we when we are remaking something why like are we saying something new are we using these stories and characters in a new way to to make a new point uh like what is the purpose here
1: in the realm of like remakes and reboots i think it's interesting if you were to take like the office As an example, where the British one only lasted for, like, a season or two, and then the American one caught on, like, wildfire and became this huge thing that lasted, what, five, six seasons? Um, Which is interesting, especially when you compare it to other British remakes of television shows, like Coupling, where the original Coupling show lasted four seasons, and then I'm pretty sure that the Coupling American version lasted, like two episodes (laughs) so it's, it's, it's an interesting like comparison to see like what has staying power and what does not and why you would make something that you could just watch you know from another country like does it need to be adapted for your culture
2: how about do you think just audience reach plays in in a factor here and and the answer is like obviously for on a financial standpoint yes but um yeah. like like the british office who the heck is watching bbc shows and and especially the british (laughs) office other than like anglophiles right um yes girl with the dragon tattoo only art house loving swedish loving people who uh have seen all the collected works of igmar bergman are going out to the theater to see the original girl with the dragon tattoo
1: Right, and, and to, see, I to sort of, like, bounce see, off of that, how many people have seen the original because they knew that this remake was being made? Right, right, And they're exactly. like, oh, I want to watch the original before it comes out. I I get your
0: point, Pete. I don't know that Girl with a Dragon Tattoo is the best example of that, though, because it was also a bestseller. Sure.
2: Uh, um, uh, let, let's so, write one in, then, would be. Um, horror yes. movie, already a little bit niche. Swedish horror movie, definitely niche. Um... But then, Kaylee, like you were saying, when the American remake came out, I bet there was an uptick in, in rentals of the original just to be like, oh, huh, let's check out that one.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Um, so the l- real last point I want to make, because I know we're running a little short on time, uh, in the question of... Why? <laughs> why do we feel the need to make things? I admit to feeling a heavy dose of skepticism when Disney started remaking all of their animated classics as live-action films. Um, I did not see Cinderella. I did see The Jungle Book, and that I actually thought was a pretty brilliant example of taking an original story and doing something definitively different with the uh, with it. Um, I think that the the John Favreau, Uh, Jungle Book is obviously shares a lot of DNA with the original Disney animated film, but is a different, if you'll excuse the pun, is a different animal, Um, which makes me a lot more excited for Beauty and the Beast, because honestly, if I hadn't seen that, I think that I would just be looking at that going, I've already (laughs) seen that. (laughs) And I I loved it, obviously, but I've already seen it. So I'm I'm hoping that they can do something. They can say something that says this is a different film and there is room in our lives for both the original animated version and this new one.
1: As a side note, Martha, I'm going to have to let you borrow the Cinderella movie because I absolutely love it.
0: And, uh, Rob okay. Starks said
2: That's all I know about it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Cinderella already wasn't one of my favorite Disney
1: movies. It was so... not mine. Okay. This is not my favorite, but this the remake, I re- like. it's really, like, charming to me, and I don't know why. Okay, I'll give it a try. Yeah.
2: Can I make one additional thing before we wrap up? Yes. Cool. Uh, this is something <laughs> that we mentioned way back near the beginning of the episode. Uh, Martha, when you were talking about the magicians, and you're like, I think I'm missing a lot. I, like, when we talk about adaptations, one thing that I think is always problematic is, like, on a book, you can do so much internal and you can do so much, um, you know, explanation that sometimes gets lost on screen. And I think that really good adaptations can filter in those world-building pages upon pages upon pages of text into really good visuals. But I also think that it's easy for a lot of good adaptations and even more bad adaptations struggle to externalize what in the text is an internal thing. Um, and The Magicians, to me, is a great example where, like, they don't always do a great job at it. Um, uh, so I'm curious about other... Well,
0: I was just gonna say, I think that a good adaptation can never assume that its consumers will be familiar with the source material. Definitely. Um, and honestly, I think that sometimes a good film adaptation can take... Uh, okay, so as a lead-in, Uh, the example I'm going to use for what I'm about to say is the fifth Harry Potter book and movie order of the Phoenix Uh, order of the Phoenix is by far my least favorite Harry Potter book because we spend so long with Harry's man pain Mm -hmm. that after a while (laughs) it's just like, Oh my God, get over yourself. Mm
1: -hmm. The movie,
0: the movie dispenses with pages and pages and pages of whininess with, like, a couple well-placed angsty looks from Daniel Radcliffe. So I think that when used well, film shorthand can be really good for kind of cutting to the heart of uh, over-exposition. But it needs to do so in a way that doesn't assume a level of familiarity from its audience.
2: Harry Potter is a great example because I feel like, especially in the later movies, um simply because they're condensing a five thousand page book into like a two-hour movie and even even though the last one was split in two, it's still like an enormous amount of content. I felt like they did a lot of assumptions, but in a good way. Like my parents recently rewatched or watched the Harry Potter movies for the first times they had never read um, the books after like five or six or something. Um but they got it, like, you know, like they they could watch the movies and and had no problem following the story and and everything, whereas someone who'd read the books would get a lot more out of it, but wouldn't be left. but if you hadn't read the books, you wouldn't be left in the cold. Um so I think they did a great job sort of layering their their rewards for knowledge base
0: well, and now we have huge swaths of our population that have only seen the movies. Oh, that's sad. <laughs> what?
2: That's sad. <laughs> Like, they've never read Why? the books? Yeah. Oh, that's sad. They should read the books.
0: Well. <laughs> I, and again, I, I, I'm with you. Like,
2: like the, the movies are wonderful. The books are wonderful. They should read the books, too.
0: Well, not everybody has time to read books, Peter. Audiobooks no <laughs> actually the, the harry, is the, not the, the harry books potter audiobooks
2: good. are famous for their I, high quality
0: yeah no, they're they're excellent i'm just saying that a an audiobook will take you like 36 hours to get through um but this is not this is not a moralizing silent. we are not moralizing reading the book versus watching the movie that's not the purpose of this conversation oh yeah and i i
2: definitely agree with that i'm just that's harry potter <laughs> you should read harry potter
0: Something that I have had to come to terms with as a librarian is that the same things that I love are not going to be for everybody. And fantasy is actually a fairly divisive genre of literature. That's all I'll say about that.
1: Okay.
0: I mean, Peter, obviously I believe that everyone should read Harry Potter. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's what
0: I was waiting for. (laughs) But Also, professionally, I am sort of obligated to understand where people are coming from when they say that they haven't read it or that they tried to and it wasn't their thing. And, oh, wasn't it great that they could watch the movies and still understand what their kids were talking about?
2: Oh, and like if you've tried it and it's not your thing, totally, totally, you know, I totally understand.
0: (laughs) Okay. Okay. Pete, what are we talking about next time? All right, next time we are talking about
2: sidekicks and uh, sidekick-hero relationships. And... uh, And... (laughs) Sorry. Uh, So my homework for that is going to be the uh, Grant Morrison uh, Batman and Robin Trade Paperback Volume 1. This is with Dick Grayson as Batman and Bruce Wayne's son Damien as Robin.
1: Nice.
0: Kaylee, what is our homework for next week?
1: Okay, so my homework is I'm going to assign a little bit of a chunk of Adventure Time for your viewing pleasure. Um and that will be episodes season 1 episodes 3, 4 and 5, Prisoners of Love, Tree Trunks and the Inchendirion. I think I pronounced that right, but I might be wrong. And where can people find Adventure Time? I know you can find Adventure Time on Hulu, and I believe you can also find Adventure Time on Netflix, at least the first season. Um, And then I'm sure that your local library will also possibly have the DVD collection available. Perhaps. Perhaps. Uh, My
0: homework for you is Nimona, a graphic novel by Noelle Stevenson. Um, Normally I like to keep it diverse, but since Nimona started life as a webcomic and was eventually collected and published as a trade paperback. I'm calling that slightly different from uh, Pete's Batman and Robin, which started life as monthly issues. So that is your homework for next week. That is all the time that we have for today. Uh, thank you for listening to did you do your homework? You can find us uh, at our home on the web at dot com. You can also tweet at us at D-Y-D-Y-H podcast. Uh, You can find us on Facebook. You can download our podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Google Play. Uh, Please rate and review us on iTunes. We do not yet have enough for me to start reading off and thanking people who do. So that will be a goal for next time. Uh, If you have a show idea, you can email email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. If you have questions, discussion questions, um, if you want to complain at us, if you think we missed something, uh, tweet at us, write on our Facebook group, send us an email, however you want us to get in contact with you. We will read your uh, communication on air. That is my promise to you. Pete, where can people find you on the web? Yeah,
2: you can find me at Twitter at Pico3000. That's P-I-K-O 3000.
1: And Kaylee, where can people find you? You can find me online on Instagram at TrickyLemon.
0: And you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at MagicalMartha. Um, I'd like to mention that all of our episodes are produced and edited by one Pete Romberg. So thank you, Pete, for doing that for us every week. And we will see you later. Class dismissed.